I decided to make this podcast because a lot of the history of Cookfield isn't immediately obvious if you walk around the village. So I've gathered some of the more interesting stories about people and places and condensed them into a self-guided tour lasting about 40 minutes. The route circles the village and the church and covers about a mile of mostly flat paved ground. Information from the podcast was taken from the Cookfield Museum, guidebooks such as the History of Cookfield, Nurse Stoner's Diary, Cookfield Remembered and also Cookfield Connections Online which has some amazing documents and original news papers. Sources are credited in the transcript that accompanies the podcast. The walk starts at the village car park which is in Broad Street near the junction of the High Street. Exit the car park through the archway and walk left until you are standing under the town clock. There's an interesting reference to the clock in an 1895 letter to the Mid-Sussex Times which complained that the £15 needed to repair the clock was a waste of ratepayers money. What use is the town clock? In my humble opinion, none whatever. Half the time it is not in going order, and when it is, it's not to be relied upon. Sometimes this is lighted up, and sometimes, more frequently, it is not. There again, we have the church clock, which chimes every quarter of an hour. And in these days of water breeze, etc., surely this ought to suffice for the wants of the Cookfield people. Water breeze were a generic term used for a pocket watch manufactured in America. Knowing the time of day had once been of great importance to the people who passed through Cookfield, as it was a stop for stagecoaches travelling between London and Brighton. In 1797, when the Prime Minister, William Pitt, brought in a tax of five shillings on clocks and watches to fund the war against the French, people abandoned their pocket watches and relied upon tavern clocks. When the landlord of the King's Head, which was at the bottom of the High Street, had a clock installed, he charged non-customers a penny to check the time. Continue up the road at the roundabout. After Lloyd's Chemist, there's an iron gate and a 17th century sandstone house called Marshall's. In the 1800s, the house was owned by a Captain Pilfold, uncle of the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, who was married to Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein. Shelley was a regular visitor to the house, and despite being expelled from Eton for promoting atheism, it seemed that his uncle enjoyed his nephew's company. In a letter to a friend, Shelley wrote about his father, I take this opportunity of the old boy's absence in London to persuade my mother and Elizabeth to come to Cookfield, as there will be three or more days' absence from this killjoy, as I name him. That was speaking about his father. Continue up the road, and on the right is Bank House, which was owned by Richard Alexander Bevan and operated as a bank when this was a much busier town. A few doors up on the same side was the Shoemakers and a Cobblers, and then Diamond House, Kate Fleming now lives there and told me some of the history of the house. So, Kate, you live in Diamond House in High Street. This house used to be the Baker's in the 1800s? Well, I would have thought slightly earlier than that, actually. I would have thought possibly the late 1700s. And the man who was quite interesting was the one who was a smuggler. And then I think he, he used to play in a band who's very musical and very talented. And he played in a band at the Talbot. And because he couldn't walk the 10 miles or whatever it was each, each night to play in a band, the landlord of the Talbot found him a business here. And that was this bakery that he took over. Yes, and he, he was also an expert in Sussex songs, was really very famous actually in the yes, locality yeah. 
he was a famous man. Because he used to play at weddings, was it? He used to mm. play at different weddings and parties and play the fiddle and the cello. But this house, the room that we're in, is a kind of square room that comes straight off of the front door, which is now your living room. But you were saying that there used to be a counter at the back. And then there's a tiny little door, it's about five foot high, that the person who was serving used to go through and then go and get the bread from the bakery at the back. And you were explaining how the gardens weren't closed off. Yes, we didn't really shut ourselves off from our neighbours until the Victorian era. They wanted privacy. Yes. And it's that's all associated with the class system. How long have you lived in Cookfields? Well, I've lived well, quite a long time. We first moved to Cookfield in about 1970. Yeah. And we lived down in Brook Street, the yeah, bottom yeah, of Brook yeah. Street in Sparks Lane, and um, then moved here on the night of the hurricane, <laughs> 1987. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that was quite a dramatic house-moving experience. Yeah. And... I've been here ever since. Yeah. So nothing was damaged here? In, um, in no. In your no, house? No. No, amazingly, nothing was damaged at all. <laughs> and, um, you know, no slates off the roof, no tiles, no nothing, no. And you said that when you moved here, so the bakery, although this front of the house would have been the a shop entrance with a counter, the actual bakery room is... A separate sort of annex at the back of the house. Yes. Um, and you said that there were dilapidated ovens and it was all sort of broken mm. down at that time. So it hadn't been a bakery for quite a while. No, I, I would have thought to see that was in the 1980, late 1980s. Mm. Yes, the late 1980s, early 90s. I, I would have thought probably... First World War, before the First World War, it finished being a bakery. When I was walking through, I could imagine when you were explaining how the gardens weren't cut off and that building was separate, it feels like a sort of Harry Potter type. I mean, to explain it to younger people, little twisty alleys and mm. buildings popping up and people coming from mm. across orchards and round the back of the church and all sorts of different rambling mm. ways to get things it seems much more fun than a kind of road going straight through and certainly for the last 10 years or so I've looked at this village in terms of a road that goes down and some shops only when you start looking at the buildings and talking to people you realize that there are lots of little back entrances and gardens and buildings that you hadn't noticed before. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting to imagine how the town would have been, I don't know, 200, 300 years ago. Uh, yes, I mean, the back was as important as the front. Mm. And people came to the back door, which is what that would have been there. Yes, yeah. Though, that, so you've that, got not, a little patio yes, now, but that would yes, have actually been yeah. somewhere that you could have come in and bought yes. things. Yes. Yeah. And this picture that you've shown me, it's got two signs, and I think it says Fancy Stationers, and then it's got Diamond House, so it's still called Diamond House, and it's got Willett Bakery, and there's a picture of um, Samuel Willett in the door, and he comes up to about halfway up the... He, he was the door. I think one of the things I found quite interesting about 
the way that Cookfield has changed is that it was actually a bigger town because the coaches were coming through. It was actually a real big community hub. And my sense of how things change is that they get bigger and bigger and bigger. But this town actually didn't exactly get smaller, but became less of a hub as Haywards Heath well, that, that, that took was, over. And then the motorway, obviously, or the main that road. That was due through. to the railway. Yes, yes, yeah, yes yeah, definitely. Yeah. And also, this was it for 99% of the community. This is where they got their food. Everything, mm. everything was here. And I'm, once again, I'm talking about, in a way, I'm talking about pre-industrial yeah, revolution. Yeah. I mean, there might have been a farmhouse here and there, but they would have brought their things to this village yes. to sell. So it still would have been mm. the, the main centre. North of Diamond House is Mitten Twitten, an alleyway which cuts through the village to London Lane. The word Twitten is an old Sussex dialect name for an alleyway leading between properties. Mitten is taken from the name of a house halfway along the lane, which was owned by a former vicar of Cookfield, Thomas Maybelly. Opposite Mitten Twitten is the Queen's Hall, built to commemorate Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. It was intended as a community hall and today houses Cookfield Museum and replicas of the dinosaur bones discovered a mile north of here in a quarry. Next to Queen's Hall on the right as you're facing it is a timber-framed house which is now named Kingsley's. In 1680 this was the home of the church warden, but by the 19th century it was rented by Henry Kingsley, an author whose brother Charles Kingsley is famous for writing The Water Babies. Kingsley is said to have been a spendthrift who drank heavily. He travelled to Australia to search for gold, and although he returned to England penniless, he went on to become a successful novelist. His first book, describing a kangaroo hunt, encounters with Aborigines and a child lost in the outback, was described by some as the greatest Australian novel of all time. But his final work was so incoherent that critics agreed it was one of the worst novels ever published. He died at the age of 46 from cancer of the tongue and is buried in Cookfield Churchyard, where there is an Art Deco monument erected in 1931 by some of his admirers. Continue up the hill past a house named Waverley and turn down the path leading to the recreation ground. In 1920, a field was purchased from what is now Ockenden Manor and given to the town by Mrs Worsley in memory of her husband and in commemoration of the 81 men of Cookfield who died in the First World War. The area is now used for the annual cuckoo fair which takes place in May. If you were to walk west of the recreation ground, you'd come to New England Wood. The woods can be reached through a footpath that runs along the side of Ockenden Manor. This guided walk doesn't go through the wood, but it's of interest because in the 1980s, Cookfield residents raised funds to purchase the woodland, which was then threatened with development. The woods are home to species of ash, beech, hazel and sweet chestnut, with footpaths and streams winding through. Depending on the time of year, bluebells, wood anemones, lesser celandine, cuckoo flower and violets can be seen. Gordon Ward is a volunteer with the New England Woods Trust. We, we, we meet at a little hut in the middle of the woods and then we then get given our instructions. Ah, oh, OK, um, yeah. So we then go off. More recently, we've been doing uh, clearing. So if, if, if there's lots of brambles, patches yeah, in the yeah, woods yeah. and we use the traditional scythes. Which yeah, is yeah. quite hard work. Yeah. So we use the scythes to clear patches. And it's really interesting because you, we cleared some earlier in the year and then we came back later in the year. 
you can't believe the amount of growth that sure, has, yeah. has come up since then. So clearing path, clearing elements of the woodland, or have never real, never had re- previously realised that those paths are maintained. Yes, um, yeah. It's like we've just done some steps. There's a bit right in the middle there that comes down two angles right down to a little stream, and the guys have we've just put in new steps. So we've dug out the steps, put some bits of wood in, which are normally bits of wood that have been found or made from the woods yeah so you it's a quite a recyclable yeah, environment yeah, really. yeah so we've done that and then they they fill them up with um, sawdust and things which would, would chippings that get mulched and yeah. put into the woods so we've done some steps a lot of the flat pathways get very wet and muddy yes. in the winter so what they do is they again do something very similar they get a couple of feet widths of branches and we chop those, slice them up, and again cover them in things to make them more an even, firmer path. And then, of course, unfortunately, at the moment we've got this ash dieback. I've heard about that, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. And, I, and when you go and see these trees that are dying, if, if they haven't already died, they fall over. Yeah, um, they're dangerous, are they? They are very yeah, dangerous. Yeah, and they, yeah. could, they could kill you. <laughs> so what happens when you mulch them or when you cut them down? Do you have to dispose of that wood? No, uh, and that's one of the big issues with with this because it would be they would be great firewood i mean yeah, you could yeah. mulch them you could wood, wood chip them and great. Mm. but it just costs so much time and money to get them out of the woods are you using chainsaws to cut things like that uh not not the not the ordinary size mm. ones everything everything is done by hand I yeah i mentioned scythes saws uh, little hammers and little axes for making posts and fences and things yeah yeah oh that's the other job yeah. we did recently we put up some deer fencing but yeah everything's done by hand but there are times that some bigger things need to do and there's mm. i think that one of the guys has got a chainsaw license if it's a big tree and um, then we have to get in the local local forestry guys but, so there are lots of seen them what look like badger sets around there and i I don't think I've really seen. Maybe I've seen deer once. So there are a lot. Do you see a lot? I've of only. I've only there? seen. I've seen two deer. Yeah. In the last. <laughs> well, I I've walked my dog in there for the last ten years. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I've seen two deer, but they they you can see signs that they have been. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, no, I think there's um, my colleague actually. He um, he, he also volunteered. He, he was asked to go and do a butterfly survey. Um, but there's yeah, so there are there are things, and there's if you look around the woods, you'll see a lot of bird nesting boxes. Yeah. And there's a, one of the volunteers, that's one of her roles. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is monitoring the birds and tears because I think it, it it gets, I think there's there's about ten about ten or twelve of us. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like I couldn't make this last Monday, um, so it's it's normally about a dozen of us, just under a dozen. Yeah. Yeah. Which is quite manageable, I think. And normally like one party goes and does something and something else. Um, or if you've got a really good job, you get a wheelbarrow full of wood chippings <laughs> from one side of the woods to the other side yeah. of the woods. But yeah, no, but I think there's about just over a dozen or so. So that area can't be developed on, is that right? Because it's been bought by the well, uh, yeah, local people? The local people. So it's a trust. No, you can't, yeah. build, you can't build on it. That's fantastic, really, isn't it? Because mm. they did that out of the sort of strength of feeling and community power of people to actually rise up and do something that they yeah well i've lived in the village strongly about yeah i've lived in the village 25 years my son's coming up to 25 yeah Um, and in all that time i've been in and out of those woods um and i was lucky enough to be offered a chance to come and help out i've got the time 
It's great. That's really good. Thank you very much, Gordon. Anyway, that's really interesting. That's no problem. At the recreation ground, cross the car park to the left of the path and follow the track along the side of the pitch and out into the footpath. Turn left past the statues of two eagles and continue round into Ockenden Lane. At the T-junction, the entrance to Ockenden Manor is on your right. Walk towards the gate. The house was originally Ockenden House and was owned by John Mitchell, whose family were lords of the manor and owned land in the area as far back as the 13th century. A fire in 1608 destroyed much of the house and it was then bought by John Burrell who extended the original building. Burrell had grown rich from the Sussex iron industry. The iron was needed to produce cannons for the war with Spain and Cookfield had all the natural resources for forging and smelting iron. Wood from the forests, streams and iron-rich soil. At the height of the industry, the fires of 1,500 furnaces could be seen at night from nearby Crowborough and even as late as 1722, the sound of beating with hammers upon the iron filled the neighbourhood night and day with continual noise. The roads were also damaged from oxen hauling iron and fuel, and ancient forests were felled to fuel the furnaces. By the 1800s, wood-fired forges were being replaced by coal, and the industry moved to the north of England. When you're facing the entrance of Ockenden Manor, follow the road left towards the lower end of the village. This road is now called Ockenden Lane, but was originally known as Brewery Lane, as the brewery stood on the site that is now Cookfield Tandoori Spice. In the 12th century, the lane marked the northern limit of the town market. In 1255, King Henry III granted John de Warren the right to hold a market in Cookfield on Tuesdays. A fair was also held here on the feast and morrow of the Nativity of St Mary, which was the 8th and 9th of September. By 1327, Cookfield residents included two tanners, a blacksmith, a cooper, two carpenters, five tailors, a thatcher and 54 labourers. Peasants holding strips of land from the lord of the manor grew flax and hemp and grazed pigs on the common land. The market is no longer here but would have been an open-sided building at the bottom of the high street. Continue south down Ockenden Lane. On the right the houses named Beadles, Almoners and the old courthouse are formed from the building that housed the original town workhouse, which later became a drill hall, a courthouse, and then a working men's club and a pub called the Bull Inn. Until the 1800s, the stocks stood on the site where there is now a horse trough. Other punishments included being placed in the pillory or whipped. The Sussex Weekly Advertiser of 1789 states that Sir John Morris was a rogue and a vagabond and whipped for running away and leaving his wife and family chargeable to the parish of Cookfield. In the 1600s, many people were whipped out of the parish for vagrancy. A bundle of accounts found in a Cookfield attic record the names of Edward, aged 11, Walter Payne, aged 12, Joan Brad and several others who were whipped for vagrancy. The buildings on the right leading out of the village would at one time have been businesses and shops. The old laundry is on the right and Valentine's Cottage, with steep steps going up to the door, was an alehouse. When fresh ale had been made, the owners would hang a bundle of twigs outside to advertise the fact. Beam ends are timber framed and date from the 16th century. At the end of the row of houses, and just after the White Hart pub, cross over the road and walk up Church Platt. This leads to Holy Trinity Church, past the back of the White Hart pub, where there was once a sawmill. I talked to Jane Swain, whose grandparents used to run the White Hart pub. I'm talking to you because you, your grandparents ran the White Hart pub. And your mum was a keen swimmer. 
and there used to be a bathing pool at the bottom of the village. They did, yes. My grandparents were Mr and Mrs Stutchbury, Ernie Stutchbury and Daisy. Her name was Marjorie, but they called her Daisy. Uh, and she ran the pub actually single-handed during the war because Grandad was called back up to the Navy. He had been in the Navy. And there were, so they were there from 1932 to 1962. And during the Second World War, there were quite a lot of troops stationed in Cookfield in various places. Did some of them live in the pubs? No, uh, some of them were at Cookfield Park, some of them were up towards the hospital. So my mum was a teenager and from probably quite an early age, she and her friends, one of whom was Phil Woods, Richard Woods' mum, they would walk down just south, due south from the, from the church, through the graveyard, down the lane, past the farm, through the fields where the bypass now runs, yeah, yeah. and right at the bottom of the hill, where there's now still a stream, and the remains of the bathing pool are still there, if you know what you're looking for. And they had swimming galas there, but they just would go off on their bikes every day, leave their bikes at the farm, and uh, just have a great time. So was it uh, an open-air open open air pool? Was it like a rectangular... Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know what size it no, was, no. but I mean, it was enough for them to have galas. But it was a freshwater pool, but it also was chlorinated, I think. It was donated by the Bevan family of Horsegate yeah, House. Yeah. I don't know if it's in the museum, but there's a really good picture of a gala. You can't see the swimming, but you can see the audience. I don't know what date Amazing. it was, 1900. So how many people would be in, in a swimming gala? Probably about 40. Wow. And then there were... <laughs> age groups and yeah. were, in fact I've still got the remains of a cup my mum had died she had the diving cup uh, I've got and photographs also of them there was a diving stage yeah um they're all all the kids are on the diving Incredible. stage <laughs> um yeah there's some uh, in the museum there's some great pictures yeah. as well and it went into the pool clerk it closed it closed in the early 50s and also, uh, with the advent of polio, which was a waterborne disease, it was closed. Okay. But as kids, in as kids in the early fifties, we used to go for picnics down there, and we paddled in what was left. Yeah. But there was there was a kind of a where the diving stages. There was kind of a lock gate type of thing, which I guess kept the pool full. Shame. It's It'd not be still great. It would be great to have a swimming pool was, again when you were at the pub. You were. I remember you were there my, as a child. Yeah. I remember most of all my granny's kitchen with a black range and a big refectory table, where she cooked a proper lunch every day. Um, we had great Christmases there. The whole layout of the pub was different then. There'd been probably at least three walls knocked down. My sitting room. Yeah. One of the rooms was a room called the committee room, where like the football club cricket club every other club had their committee meetings in that room and that was a licensed area and the other side which is the public bar was in two separate rooms one of the rooms where the fireplace is was called the smoking room and the other was public bar and there was at least one piano in there and there were several people that used to come in and just used to sit at the piano and Dom our tune. And um, some yeah, nights yeah, when yeah. my brother and I slept upstairs above <laughs> the public bar, 
you know, I learned all those songs, Daisy Daisy and all those wartime songs oh, like um, My Old Man's Is Following the Fan, uh, <laughs> It's a Long Way to Tipperary, all yeah, those kind of yeah. songs. But was that, if you were trying to sleep upstairs in the pub? We weren't trying to sleep. You enjoyed listening <laughs> in? We just the, used to the, quite, yeah, yeah. We just used to quite enjoy it really. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and was, were, were there women in the pub in those so days? Not so much. Not so much. Certainly not in the public bar. Rarely. There was a, another little room that I guess nowadays you would call a snug, which is just kind of, as you go in the door of the, what is now the Thai restaurant, it was a tiny little room with a little table and probably two hard chairs. And I know there were there were a couple of couples that used to come and sit at that table. One of them, I think, came with a lady that wasn't his wife, and it was all a bit, and I used to say, who is that? Who is that? So oh. you'd know the village secrets. I'm not going to ask you the village secrets, but well, you, would, you would be privy to a lot of information. Well, yeah, probably. <laughs> well, my, my, my granny was privy to an awful lot of information. She was a very good listener. She was a great landlady. She wasn't your typical landlady. No. Um, she always wore a very smart grey suit and her hair in a bun, terribly refined, and she would listen. She would talk to the customers a lot, but more listening to yeah. them than... Psychiatrist. Yeah, she was a great listener, <laughs> counsellor. Yeah, she was a great listener. Before the advent of the railway line, the village would have been a popular stop to rest horses, eat and drink, shop or stay overnight in a hotel. Businesses such as the clockmakers, a shoe factory and a carriage makers were within walking distance. Church Platt is described in one source as the root fire which so many villagers are hatched, matched and dispatched. Walk towards the church and enter the churchyard through the lich gate. The word lich is derived from the Saxon word for corpse and was intended to shelter coffins on their way to burial. Opposite the church on the side nearest to the village is the old schoolhouse. The school was first mentioned in the will of Edmund Flower in 1521. Flower left money for a grammar school. The master was to instruct pupils in the form, order and usage of the Latin of the grammar school at Eton. When the Eton archives were destroyed by fire, they borrowed the school curriculum from Cookfield. Cross the graveyard in front of the church to return to the village through Church Street. Part of the church dates from the 12th century, when William de Warren built a small chapel here. The name Cookfield, then spelt K-U-K-E-F-E-L-D, is first mentioned in 1092 and may mean a clearing full of cuckoos. The land was given to William de Warren by William the Conqueror and a hunting lodge was built. The church has been altered and enlarged many times. Inside there are a number of interesting memorials, monuments and a painted ceiling and stained glass windows. As you walk past the church, there are three small cottages inside the churchyard. These were originally alehouses, which parishioners would go to for refreshments between services. Just opposite the cottage, one of the older graves has a winged skull carved in the top, which is just about visible. This symbol was popular in the 18th century and represented the soul fleeing mortality. Another grave close to the old school has an hourglass carved into it, which reminds us that life is short. At a time when few people could read, carved symbols were an important way of conveying ideas and distinguishing one grave from another. From the top of the churchyard, there's a wonderful view of the South Downs. This ridge was formed by the remains of countless organisms laid down under a tropical sea 10 million years ago. 
The South Downs Way follows the top of this ridge from Winchester to Eastbourne. Now go up through another lich gate on the north side of the churchyard into Church Street. Although many of the houses in this street have been altered over the years, some of the original features are still visible. A red brick three-storey building on the left house the undertakers and behind it the coffin makers. On the right there's a timber-framed house named Nonsuch Cottage. In the 15 and 1600s, Nonsuch meant something excellent or perfect so it's possible that the owner of this house thought that this was the perfect place to live. Further up to the right, the house now called Peelers was the village police station and the cells were situated in the cellar. Peeler was a nickname for a policeman. The name is taken from Sir Robert Peel, who formed the first police force in 1829. The last building on the left is part of what was once the King's Head pub, although the main building was originally in the High Street, where Marcus Grimes' estate agents is now. The landlord is said to have kept 30 or 40 pairs of horses to cater for the 50 or more carriages passing through the village each day. Just to the right of the umbrella-shaped cedar tree and set back from the road behind iron railings is Ockenden Cottage. This house is one of the earliest buildings in the village and would have originally been a single-storey dwelling with shutters in place of windows. These traditional timber-framed houses would have been very dark as oiled linen or horn covered the windows and a gap in the roof let out smoke from the fire. This house was at one time a village butcher's shop, with a bakery next door. Although the house has been altered over time, the iron railings and gate around the house are now Grade two listed and date from the 19th century. Turn right at the top of Church Street and follow the pavement around into a dead end. At the end of this road is the entrance to the old vicarage. The house is of early 17th century origin. The area in front of the vicarage was once referred to as Vicarage Square. In 1861, about 550 townspeople gathered here for an expedition to London to see the International Exhibition. Led by the town band, they marched to Heath Station. At Victoria, they were met by two Metropolitan Police officers who escorted them to the exhibition. One resident remembered that this long line of our country people, each bearing a sprig of Sussex oak, was really a very pretty and interesting sight and attracted very great attention. The first building on your right is now Tom's Café. In 1793, Louis XIV of France was executed and France declared war on England. French refugees living in England were required to move at least 10 miles from the coast and 29 moved to Cookfield at this time. The family of Signor Baron de Villers took up residence in this house. Several other refugees stayed at the King's Head. In more recent times, the house next door to Tom's was occupied by cookery writer Katie Stewart. Her son, Andy Leask, still lives in the house. Andy, so I've come here to talk to you about your mum, Katie Stewart, who is a very famous cookery writer who lived in Cookfield. And she also lived in Farthings, did she, in Broad Street originally? Farthings, yes, just uh, up the road, slightly opposite the car park. We lived there, so we moved there when I was four and bought this house. Uh, downsized, funny enough, from a four-bedroom to a five-bedroom. So she moved here about 17, 18 years ago, but uh, only spent five years in this house. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. unfortunately passed away, would be 10 years in January. Yeah, yeah. So when you were young, so your mum, she wrote the Times cookery book. She trained, she did Cordon Bleu cookery in Paris. She, she studied. Did, yeah. yeah. Um, and because of that, she must have been an amazing cook. Do you remember having like amazing food at home or 
Uh, I do. Into that I, do I do. I mean, uh, so I mean, I spent a, I spent my young years at boarding school. Yeah. Uh, but when I was at home, uh, that's all she did was cook. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, later, sort of after leaving boarding school, uh, I went to the local comprehensive and was at home a lot more. And uh, I'd always remember that she had a photographer, a lovely guy called Anthony Blake who used to be very jealous because she'd cook all this food, they'd take photographs yeah. of it, and she'd leave the food there, so they'd all eat it, but she always said she had to come home to be, you know, to cook for me. Oh, okay, so this wasn't here. She didn't, they didn't photograph the food here. That no, was the, 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 London, the photographs were all done in a studio up in London. Yeah, And they yeah. were for, they, that was for the Times Cookery Book and Woman's Journal magazine, which she wrote for for 30 years. So when you were younger, did you meet... I suppose you might not have known whether you were meeting interesting people. Did I, you get to go up to London? Uh, I did. And... I used to go to the so the it was uh, IPC magazines was the company that had Women's Journal and a host of other magazines. So there was a, a, a tower block there that I used to go up to quite often. Uh, I used to go to a lot of the photo shoots, and then there was also the they had a cordon bleu or sort of a, a, a cookery thing going on in Jersey, and all the top cookery writers used to go yeah. there and I used to go with, so they would take their husbands or wives you know prospective partners yeah. uh, and my mum used to take me oh nice so, yeah yeah uh, well I, I, I used to eat very well as a child yeah yeah, yeah. so that means you're quite fussy now when you go out I'm just a good cook yeah yeah because no, you're always <laughs> borrowing things from the um, yeah. Talbot aren't you what I read when I was reading online about your mum it said that because she was a woman she chose not to go into cookery as a profession and she became a nanny. And what was really interesting is it sounded that that actually worked out really well for her because she became a nanny in Paris yes. and then was able well, to... Well, there's a, there's a little story behind that yeah. one because my mother had very big hands and she was a uh, very, very good swimmer. She, she was a very good swimmer. She was touted for the Olympic squad Wow. Uh, for Great Britain. Yeah, and uh, her father, my grandfather, who unfortunately I never met because he died during during the Second World War, uh, said to her that there was absolutely no way that she was going to be an Olympic swimmer because it wasn't a career, yeah. and that she should choose something that was best suited to her and to a yeah. future husband. Yes, which would which was um, you know uh, domestic. So that's where she yeah, went domestic, domestic science. Yeah, yeah. And from then she became one of the top cookery writers in the country. Yeah, and she went to New York. Um, she did. She went by boat. She applied for a job with Nestle. With Nestle. Yeah. She was, uh, she was, uh, she worked for Nestle for uh, just over a year. You didn't fly in those days. Yeah. So she took a boat from Southampton, I presume Southampton, yeah. to New York, waved goodbye to her mother. Her mother, my grandmother, never thought she was coming back. Yeah. And she spent a year and a bit with Nestle and then came back and went to France. Uh, she was involved in her career all the way through my life. Yeah. I had various nannies, and hence why I probably went to boarding school. Yeah, it would be very difficult for her, you know. I guess, to... Uh, being a single lady, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, she got divorced in 68 when I yeah. was four, yeah. which was not a done thing. 
No, and she managed to bring you up and yeah. have an amazing career and yeah, write and so many cookery books. Yeah, I think, I think it's about 16, 17 cookery books in total. Was she mayor of Cookfield? She was in 2001. And then you were mayor of Cookfield In 2021, well. yeah, 20 years later. Yeah, so. so you think she'd be quite proud of you being mayor? <laughs> <laughs> I think she'd probably, yes. I don't think she'd be proud of me. She'd probably go, oh my God, it's too, it's too much like hard work. But, you know, it was great. Yeah, Being the mayor yeah. was fantastic. Yeah. Further up the high street on the right is the Talbot pub. This was originally named The Hound, but was renamed and enlarged in 1800. A poster from the 1850s describes the Talbot family hotel with commodious apartments and horses and carriages for hire. However, by 1850, the railway had been built several miles east of Cookfield through Haywards Heath and a new, more direct route from London to Brighton now existed. Servants and grooms soon found themselves out of work and the shopkeepers suffered from the decrease in trade. Although many independent shops continued until the 20th century, the High Street, which was once a busy shopping area, had become increasingly residential. Annie lives in the High Street now and remembers many of the shops that still existed up until the 1970s. When we came here, there were two butchers. That's why we remembered that next door had been a butcher's and there were three butchers and there was a bank and then Belvira's little restaurant. The King's Head was the one that's now King's Muse, is yeah. that? Oh, okay, so that was a restaurant for a while. No pub. Right, now when you go to the Queen's Hall, you go into the main hall and look back up, there is a, a beautiful painting of the King's Head pub with Martin, who was the landlord at the time when we were all here. But the King's Head was where we all went. It was a thriving pub, fantastic pub. And we had um, a thing called the Zoo Crowd every Sunday. The Zoo Crowd? The Zoo Crowd. Well, Kate, just... Kate Fleming was part of it. It was where we all met and with all our children. And why was it called the Zoo Crowd? Kids. <laughs> oh, I see, because the children were like the animals. <laughs> yeah, the zookeepers. And we used to go every Sunday. Yeah. Masses of people and be there all Okay. You had Sunday lunch and just, yeah, just drinks. And just drinks and lunch and whatever. Lovely. And it was just like um, a real meeting place in those days. There's not much space there, is there? I mean, there's the inside of the building is now apartments. Yeah. So there wasn't an outdoor space. but yes, there, was... there was an oh, outdoor okay. space. Oh, OK. Yeah, good outdoor space. I can tell you a story about that. Tell me a story, go on. Well, we used to be in the summer show, Cookfield Summer Show, and it was held every two years. It was a great event, and I organised it with Brian Shasser. Half the village was in it. Anyway, and then after it, one year, we all went back to the King's Head and were in the garden and obviously making far too much noise at about two o'clock, and so the man next door put his hose on us all. <laughs> but two in, the morning, two in the morning? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was that kind of pub. <laughs> it didn't have any closing time. Well, it did, <laughs> It, it, um, you know, if you're going back 30 years, things were very different. It was great fun. So do you think that the supermarkets and the... I mean, I mean, obviously that would have destroyed the individual shops, having bigger supermarkets, Sainsbury's, um, Tesco's, that kind of thing? I don't, I don't know. I think a lot of it was... I wouldn't say that they destroyed it. I think a lot of it was circumstances. I mean, we had a wonderful haberdashery. When they retired, got broken... You know, the business sort of... Because they weren't doing Mr. and Mrs. Beaumont, they weren't doing it anymore. Yeah, I see. Yeah. It was it, yeah. they were there forever, and then the other side was the the ironmongers, where uh, the beauty place was and yes. the carpet shop. 
It used to go up steps to that. Yeah. Never know what happened to those steps. And it was a big shop, and it had absolutely everything. But again, it was nice then. And then, of course, when he died, yeah, it went. So it was more to do with when people left or died, yes. rather than the fact that they were they were fantastically yeah. successful shops. And I suppose it meant that you didn't need a car, so you could just you could go get somewhere to get anything that you get needed everything. on any day. Everything. I must mean, be really nice. More it, community. Yeah. It, it, you sort of like would shop more every day, and then then down where Nisa is now, which was the co-op, yeah, that changed many times, and that was at one point a fantastic delicatessen. Yeah, I mean, really lovely. And then down at the bottom where you what you talk about Blossom and Raw, that was Vera. My friend Vera had um, a beautiful knitting shop there. Yeah, been so many things that shop. When we first came here. That was a news agent and a sweet shop. Mm. Then it, Vera bought it for this knitting shop. And it's just been so many different things. Some of the shops have just changed and changed and changed. Yeah, yeah. Really changed yeah. a lot. You know, lots of shops come and go, and then one of them finds great success yeah. and stays for a while. And so then lots will come and go. We've got five hairdressers now. Do you think the well, people in the village have changed? It's much younger. Now. Yeah. I mean, I'm the longest living person in the high street. Not the oldest, but I'm the one who's been here the who's longest. Who's been here the longest. And I find that quite surprising. Did you, did you move from... We moved from Essex. Yeah. We came down to work at the School for the Deaf, the Millwall yeah. School for the Deaf. We're both teachers of the Deaf. So, so did the school move from Essex or did you just apply no, 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 for no. that job? And... No, we were in a school for the Deaf in Essex and then I came down a term before Clive, my husband. So I lived with the secretary of the school. And I went down to the phone box down outside the Talbot and I phoned Clive and said I bought a house and all I'd done was walk into this lounge, didn't see the rest of it. I just bought it then and there, gave them the asking price. Best thing I ever did. Wow. But I mean, houses would have been not as expensive then, but it, that was still quite a... Yeah, still quite a lot of money at that time. Yeah. And but it you needed... You wanted it? It was in two flats yeah and it needed a complete overhaul yeah complete but it was the best thing yeah and a good location because you're it's a fantastic location. in the middle of everything high street. yeah living in high street yeah fantastic location yeah. we both worked full-time teachers and i worked three days a week in alvira's and then when jeremy moved to the king's head clive as deputy head of the school would wash up every friday Incredible. And that was our spending money. Loved it. Yeah, yeah. You'd meet everyone. It'd be nice. I loved it. Yeah, social and life. Clive felt no, because we you're short of money, and that's yeah. what people don't get. Yeah. So yeah. we were really short of money. Yeah. We had three kids. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we didn't have holidays. We didn't yeah. know what a holiday was. Him washing up. Used to. I used to. I can't remember how much you got, but it was enough to go out on a Saturday night or pay for a yeah. babysitter or whatever. And you're working with friends. They're still my best friends. The people that is that Elvira? Yeah. And her husband. Yeah. Yeah. Best friend. Continue up the road to the roundabout, where a right turn brings you back to the car park. That brings me to the end of the podcast. I'd like to thank Kate Fleming, Gordon Ward, Jane Swain, Andy Leesk, and Annie Reese for sharing their stories. I'd also like to thank Andy Revel for providing most of the historical information and Dominic North for providing technical support. Thank you for listening.